When I was in seventh grade, I was in Mr. Cox's English class, and he was up front uh, teaching. And one of the secretaries walked into the room. And rather than kind of stand at the door waiting for his attention, she just walked immediately up to him and whispered something in his ear. And he just said, thank you. And then she slipped out, and he kept right on teaching. And we were really, really curious. And I think he finally figured out that we were no longer listening to his lecture, that we're wondering what just happened And so he stops because we're wondering, like, is one of us in trouble? Like, do we have to go to the office? Or or maybe, you know, he got a phone call. This is way pre-cell phone era. So maybe he's got a phone call. He's going to have to leave the room. And then we get to, you know, be in control of the room for a short time. That would have been awesome. Or, Or maybe there was some big announcement. Well, there was a big announcement. He pauses for a second and says, oh, if you're wondering what that was about, the Space Shuttle Challenger just exploded on liftoff. I think if you were to ask anyone, oh, let's say over the age of 35, where they were on the day the space shuttle Challenger exploded, they probably could tell you. I obviously was in Mr. Cox's seventh grade English class. Just this weekend, actually just yesterday, my parents were here to to see my son's flag football game and my daughter's cross-country meet. And I, I was curious. I asked them, I said, do you remember where you were when Kennedy was shot? And immediately they both said, oh, yeah. They were both in high school, and they, they both just, even though they were in different high schools, they both happened to be passing between periods, and they heard it out in the halls. My dad said it was so shocking to their school, they almost canceled the rest of classes and closed school because it was so disturbing. For the current generation, if you ask them, where were you on 9-11, they can immediately tell you. We all experience days. And some of the days we remember, but, but so many of them just kind of blur together. But then there's that day that just it sticks. Sometimes a day is sticky because it's a good day. I'm going to tell you, my wedding was a sticky day for the right reasons. It was phenomenal. I loved my wedding day. Or, or the day one of my kids was born. I remember each and every one of them. Those were good, sticky days. But then there's those days that stick because of the horror, because of the shock. Because when you see planes fly into buildings, you can't quite forget those images. When you see people falling out of windows, it's not something you're going to easily forget. When you see rubble chasing people through the streets of New York, the day sticks deep into your memory bank. The disciples of Jesus had many sticky days. Some of them were sticky for amazing reasons. You know, like I I think when they went to that wedding and they think they're just hanging out with this really cool rabbi and suddenly he turns water into wine, that was a sticky day. Or or maybe when they were out at the field and all of a sudden they realized, oh man, these people are getting hungry. We better send them home. And Jesus says, now let's feed them. And they take a little boy's lunch. And next thing you know, they're feeding 5,000 people with just some fish and bread. That would have been a sticky day. Or two weeks ago, as we looked at the miracles of Jesus, and we saw him stand up in a boat and say, peace, be still. And they were in awe and fear. That was another sticky day. But there was one day that was even stickier than any other day. And it wasn't sticky because it was a wow moment. It was sticky because it was a horrific moment. And that day was the day of Jesus's crucifixion. Today, we are going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. 
we've been doing this series called His Story. We started it all the way back in January. And we've been just walking through the Bible, looking how all of the Bible points to Jesus. And over and over and over, we've been seeing all of these allusions to Jesus. And some of them allude to this day. But today, we cannot just allude any longer to the cross. We can't just kind of give it a, a, a glance and reference it. Today, we've got to stop and we have to look at the cross. Because the crucifixion story is at the center of the Christian faith. It's the foundation for the gospel. It's the foundation for Riverwood. And it should be the foundation for you. And so we can't just give it a cursory glance, sing about it in some songs, and then call it a day. So even if you've heard this a million times, you need to hear it one more. We need to stop and look at what Jesus did on a cross. Now, I'm going to be honest. For some of you, this is not going to be comfortable. Right? We probably should add like a, a rating to this. This is definitely at least PG-13, maybe R. Some of you, you're going to cringe. Some of you, your stomach's going to get a little upset. Some of you, you're going to actually feel some pain this morning because you are so empathetic that as you hear what Jesus went through, you're going to actually feel a little bit of it yourself. But we have to do this. Because when you take this week and what we look at next week and you put them together, you find the foundation for the Christian faith. And so we must peer into this. Here's my hope. That as we look at this horrific event, it becomes for us also a sticky day. That today becomes a day that we remember. And maybe, just maybe for some of you, this is the day where your life changes because you looked at the cross of Jesus. So would you join me in prayer as we get ready to open the word? So Father, we come before you saying, be our teacher. Show us. As hard as it is to look at, as difficult as it is to imagine, it all took place back in history. This is the pinnacle of history, and so we have to look at this. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help our attention to be locked in, not on what I want to say, but on what you need to say. Open your scriptures. Teach us. Father, help me to be in sync with you and with your spirit so that you can speak to everyone that's here today. Because every person that has walked in this room and is sitting in these seats, they are at a different place spiritually. Some have been following you for a long time. Some may be wondering if this whole story is real. Father, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to each and every person. And you would help us to see Jesus crucified. So God, help us right now to lift Jesus up, knowing that you will then draw all men to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We were in Luke 22 last week. We were looking at the roots of communion. As we looked at the establishment of the Lord's Supper, we saw that it came out of the Passover. Jesus celebrated this ancient Jewish feast with his disciples, just like Jews had been doing annually for generations but what Jesus did on that particular Passover was he began to take what they had known for, you know, through tradition and expound upon it and show how even Passover itself pointed to Jesus. And he drew out of that what we now know as communion. Well, the events of the crucifixion begin right after that meal. 
So often when we think of crucifixion, we think of when the, the first nail is driven into Jesus. But it's not. Crucifixion doesn't start with the nails. Crucifixion actually started in a garden. And it begins right after that Passover Seder meal. So join me in Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray, that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The suffering of Jesus actually begins right here in the garden. Some people have doubted this whole idea of, you know, your blood become, I mean, your sweat becoming like blood. But it is an actual recorded event that some people have gone through. It's called, I want to make sure I get the word right, hematidrosis. It's where the capillaries in your sweat glands break and the blood seeps in. So as you sweat, it appears that you are sweating blood. It only happens to people who are under extreme stress. Jesus, knowing what he is about to go through, is in the garden. And he is already beginning to feel the effects. The emotional stress that he feels is now becoming physical suffering. And he begins to sweat blood. After this, he gets up, he finds his disciples sleeping, and he wakes them up because Judas, one of his disciples, is on the way. What we didn't look at last week was how during the Passover meal, Jesus sends Judas out because he knows that Judas is going to betray him. Judas heads over. He's already received his money as payment to betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. So they send a bunch of temple soldiers with Judas, and Judas knows exactly where they're going. Because as you heard there, this was their custom to go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Judas shows up with these soldiers, and they arrest Jesus. They tie him up, and the disciples are fearful, and they scatter And the soldiers take Jesus. First, they take him to uh, one of the uh, former high priest's house. And then they decide, all right, let's call together the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. So they bring him before the Jewish council. But this is an absolute sham of a trial. Jewish law says that when the Sanhedrin holds court, it should be done in a particular place during the day in as absolutely fair of a way as possible. But Jesus is having this trial take place in the middle of the night. He has no representatives. And the verdict has already been reached before the trial even begins. The whole reason they wanted to arrest Jesus was they wanted to kill him. And they're trying to find all these witnesses to to give an account of why he, he deserves death. And nothing's working out. Until they finally look at Jesus and say, are you the son of God? And he says, yes. At that moment, they cry heresy. He deserves death. The verdict has been reached. But there's a problem. You see, Rome controls Israel. They set Israel up as this puppet state, making Israel think that they have some control. I mean, they have a little king, King Herod. They think that they can do some things, but they really can't. And one of the things that Israel couldn't do was commit capital punishment. They need Rome to do that. 
And so as the sun is rising, the Sanhedrin brings Jesus before Pilate. Now, it's right at the time of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these Jews will not go into Gentile areas. And so they require Pilate to come out to them. Pilate stands, court, stands holds court, and determines that Jesus is innocent. But these men insist, no, he's guilty. He's a rabble-rouser. You've got to kill him. He's going to be a menace even to Rome. And so Pilate says, you know what? He's from Galilee. Let's send him off to the uh, Galilean leader. Let's send him off to Herod. And so they cart Jesus off. Herod's thrilled. He, he's been hearing about this miracle worker. Now the chance to meet him, to talk with him, maybe he'll do a miracle for him. Jesus not only does not do any miracles, he doesn't even say a word. Herod gets frustrated and just sends Jesus back. So now, here's what happens when Jesus comes back to Pilate. Join me in chapter 23, verse 13. Luke 23, 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Now, in Rome, punishment did not mean I'm going to take a ruler and slap you on the knuckles. No, punishment meant flogging. You see, the Romans, they would flog someone to the point of nearly death. And so he's determined Jesus doesn't deserve death, so we'll just flog him, get him to that point of death, and then we'll let him go. Now, here's what a flogging looks like. They would take a whip called a flagellum, and they would uh, whip it along their back. You would take their, I know the picture has Jesus on his knees, but one thing I read said that often they would be shackled up, their hands up above their head, and they would be standing. And then they would take these whips, and they would whip them. C. Truman Davis is a uh, medical doctor, and he describes the flogging of Jesus like this. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum, or flagellum, in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. A couple of the other resources I saw this week said that they also would sometimes embed like a glass or bone inside those leather thongs just to create more damage on the skin. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally, spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first pr produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. And finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. So Pilate decides, we're going to show you who's in control. Rome. I determined that this Jesus was innocent, and yet we're going to flog him and let him go. Normally, if you're going to crucify someone, you don't flog them. Rome wanted them to hang on this cross for as long as possible. 
You wouldn't want to weaken him. And so this is the plan. Flog Jesus and let him go. But when they bring him back, the Jewish leaders cry, no, it's not enough. Release Barabbas, this other guy, to us and make Jesus take his place. Kill Jesus. And Pilate realizes he about has a riot on his hands. He walks over, washes his hands in water and says, his blood is on you and hands Jesus off to be crucified. Here's how it picks up in Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Skip over to 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. To us, this is two sentences. But to Luke, the physician, his readers would know what those two sentences mean because they've seen crucifixion. It started back in the city. Jesus would have been made to carry the big cross beam. And as he would have to carry that cross beam through the uh, streets, he would be so weak. Again, you normally didn't flog someone who was about to be crucified. You see, by being whipped so badly, he was, he'd lost so much blood that he was so weak. He, he's already had no sleep during the night. He probably hasn't been given anything to drink, so he's dehydrated. And now his back is shredded, and he's lost so much blood, he can't carry the beam. And so they have grabbed another guy, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. And they make it up the 650 yards to Golgotha, this place of the school, with two other criminals following. What would have happened is they would have taken that big crossbeam, laid it on the ground, and then rolled Jesus on top of it to put one hand on each side. They would have then taken about five-inch nails and nailed it right into the wrist between the two bones so that it couldn't be in the hand where it would slip out and it would stay and lock in place. And they would bend the elbows just slightly so there was just enough flex. They would then hoist that beam up on top of a post that was already in the ground. And they would then bend the knees and take the legs, I mean the feet, put them over each other and drive one nail through the two feet. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, interviewed a, a medical professional named, I think it was Alexander, yeah, Alexander Metherell. And here is how uh, Dr. Metherell describes it. Once a person is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual must push up on his feet so that the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloody back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until the complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. As the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat. In fact, with his heart beating erratically, Jesus would have known that he was at the moment of death, which is when he was able to say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And then he died of cardiac arrest. But even then, as he died, the physical punishment wasn't done. John 19, 31 continues the story. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. You see, by breaking the legs, they could no longer push up on that nail to get air in their lungs. They basically, by breaking their legs, would suffocate them. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and with, uh, with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And with that spear stab into the side, into the heart, the physical suffering of Jesus came to an end. Told you it was horrific. And yet, that wasn't even the totality of his suffering. Because the suffering went even further. Because the suffering that Jesus went through wasn't just a physical suffering. There was also a lot of emotional suffering. We saw it beginning in the garden as he's sweating blood. But then, as they arrest him, his disciples abandoned him. Anyone here ever felt like they were abandoned? To feel alone, the emotional toil that brings? And then when he gets brought into the Sanhedrin and they announce death, 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 the soldiers blindfolded him and began to spit on him and slap him, saying, prophesy, who hit you? And in that moment, I bet Jesus knew exactly their name and exactly their story. And he said nothing. The emotional suffering continued. And after uh, Pilate hands him over for crucifixion and Jesus is sent off, the Roman soldiers had a little fun at his expense as they wrapped a, a robe around him and jammed a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him, the creator of the universe, and they treated him like scum. And then when he was put up on a cross, the Jewish leaders stood below saying, if he really is the son of God, let him come down off that cross the emotional suffering was there through the entire thing. But it wasn't just physical suffering and emotional suffering. There was also spiritual suffering. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, at one point he cries out, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's because what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That was so that the wrath of God could come against sin and vanquish it completely. And so this wasn't just a physical suffering and a horrible death. It wasn't just emotional suffering. This was spiritual suffering. As God was placing the sins of the world upon Christ and just his wrath coming against sin. Because sin had messed up God's creation of humanity. And now he's making it right. And all the anger and wrath that God had held back through the centuries was now coming against sin. And Jesus took the brunt. So the suffering of Jesus was physical, it was emotional, and it was spiritual. It was total. You know what the remarkable thing in this is? Is that Jesus knew all of that was going to happen. 
and he did it anyway. He did it willingly. Repeatedly with his disciples, he would tell them, the Son of Man is going to die. He told them, and they just weren't prepared for it. They just couldn't fathom it. He talked about even being lifted up. He knew the manner in which he was going to die. I I bet Jesus had seen people crucified. He knew exactly what lay ahead of him. And yet we still find him in Luke 19, walking out in front of his disciples, leading them to Jerusalem during the Passover week, leading up a week before his death. But we see him in John chapter 10 saying this, John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus knew his purpose to come to earth wasn't just to teach us about the kingdom of God. It was ultimately to go and die in our place. That that is why when he stood before the Sanhedrin, and they can't even get their witnesses to get their testimony in sync, Jesus finally just has to say, I'm the son of God, knowing that that would condemn him to heresy, and they would say he must die because no man can be God. Except in their presence, was a man who was fully God. Jesus willingly went through hell so that you wouldn't have to. You see, the Bible teaches us that the penalty of sin is death. Our sin is so grievous against God that his wrath should come against our sin. But he loves us because God created us. He put his image in us. And so how does God fulfill his attribute of justice against sin, but yet hold on to his mercy because of his love for us? We see it right here in the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. This is why we can't be casual about our relationship with Jesus. We cannot mumble songs and worship to him. We can't let our Bibles just sit on shelves collecting dust. We can't just go about life as, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I know the story. And then pretend as if the nails never went through the wrist. He went through it all for you and for me. And that deserves our everything. you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know I am glad you came. I've been praying for you this week. I I want you to know we actually started Riverwood Church for you. Our mission is to invite the spiritually disconnected. If you feel spiritually disconnected from God, this is your church. And the way to connect back with your creator is this story right here. Jesus paid the price For all of us, so that we could come into the presence of God. Our sin can be forgiven. There's a story that happened just a few months after Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, The apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was out and about, and he saw a man who was crippled, and so he healed the man. Well, this causes quite a commotion, 
And the, the Jewish council hears about it. And they drag Peter back in. And this Jewish council, some of the same men who condemned Jesus to death, start telling him, you've got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And here's what Peter says in response to them. Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you. This is Peter speaking. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it's by him this man is standing before you healed and well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I'm going to say to you, That if Peter can boldly stand before a bunch of Jewish leaders who killed Jesus and say this, then I'm going to boldly proclaim before you that there's salvation found in no one else but Jesus. He loves you so much. He was willing to go through that kind of pain willingly for you. So I invite you to give your life to him. Make Jesus the center of who you are Don't let the story just be a side thing. Let this be the core of your identity. And let it drive you. And when you make the story the center of who you are, everything changes. You are no longer spiritually disconnected. You now are reconnected with your creator. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins, but when we place our faith in Jesus, we become alive spiritually. We go from being separated from God to being adopted by God. That is good news. And it all is because of what happened on a cross. And so I invite you, place your faith in Jesus. Make him the leader of your life and begin to follow him. I realize there's many of you that have heard this story multiple times and there was a point in your life where you said yes to Jesus. But if you're honest, you've gotten really casual. You've heard the story so many times that it's become just a little bit, you know, routine. It's rote. You know it. And yet I need you to look yet again at what Jesus did for you. That's why we're going to open up the communion tables. As we spend a moment in prayer, as we sing another song, I want you to come and I want you to take that bread and I want you to take the cup. But we do this every Sunday at Riverwood. And I don't want you to come this time just out of duty, just out of routine, to do it thinking that this somehow is going to make God happy or this is going to help make my life get all right. No, I invite you to come that if you are a Jesus follower, this bread and this cup is a reminder that Jesus went to a cross and his body was broken. His blood was liberally shed for you. And as you take and eat and drink, I don't want you to imagine the elements. I want you to imagine a man. I want you to see him crucified. Because as you see him for what he did, you realize the love he gave to you. And that can make today a sticky day. The day when you realized how powerful the cross is and what it truly means And everything changes. So Jesus, we say thank you. You knew what was going to happen. And you did it anyway. 
God, I confess that many moments, many hours, many days, I, I live my life just for me. And I'm not living in an awareness of what you went through. And yet to study and see yet again the enormous pain you went through physically and emotionally and spiritually, what you did for us, it is overwhelming. It puts me in awe. And I can't help but say thank you and worship you. So right now, Lord, as we pray, as, as the Jesus followers in this room come to these elements, I pray you just draw us to you because we have lifted you up. Help us to see Jesus crucified and realize the immense love you have for us and let it change us from the inside out. So fathers, we come, we do this remembrance of Jesus.